Our sermon text this evening comes from the Gospel of John, and our focus is going to be on one verse in particular, but for the sake of context, we'll begin at verse 19 of John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would please work in us. Tune our hearts, Lord, we pray. For we are unstrung by our own corruption. Every day we slide back into a discordant way of life and thinking. The cross itself bears witness that there was no lesser remedy that could suffice for what we are. We thank you for the extent of your goodness that has upheld this world and we ourselves from manifesting that sin which clings close. We ask that this evening you would please rescue, restore, deliver, build up, in every way bring glory to your Son as we consider these words together. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I said, our focus this evening is going to be on a single verse, and that verse is the exclamation of John in verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Start simply with that word, behold. 
In our English language, that is not a word that we use very much. Often, if we do hear it, it seems to be somewhat formal. But the word, the ancient term that was used here, was very common. It was as common as you or I using the word look. And it was used in basically the same way. If you want to direct someone's attention to something that they need to recognize, something that they need to respond to in the right way, you would say that word. Imagine scenarios where this would happen in your life, not so different from theirs then. Imagine that you're in your kitchen and maybe a few other people are around and you notice that there is now a grease fire starting. And what might you say? You might say, look! They would in the same manner, this term, behold! Recognize the danger, the hazard, in order that you might take appropriate steps to respond to it. Or at that moment, as you see the fire going up, you might look to your left and you see on the wall there is a fire extinguisher. And you say, look! Again, this is the way to be delivered from the danger, perhaps. And you're trying to draw attention. Maybe you can't get there. The fire's too big. And so you want someone else to see that. You're drawing their attention to it. Or imagine that you are unsuccessful. You pass out. And when you awake, the whole house is burned down. But somehow you are alive. And as you come to in the hospital, someone else says, look. And they point their arm to the person who saved your life. There they are calling you to a response, one of gratitude, one of respect, appreciation. Tonight we're going to see in this passage that through John, the Holy Spirit is calling you, perhaps for the first time or perhaps afresh, to behold Christ as the Lamb. To behold, to recognize what it means in light of Good Friday that he is called Jesus, the Savior, and to respond to him appropriately. Now, as we do this, we're simply going to move through this one verse and examine some of the parts of it a little bit more carefully, starting with something even before Jesus. Before we can behold Jesus in this text the way that we will, we need to behold something else in verse 29. Look with me. Behold Look at the sins of the world. The word world here is extremely broad in meaning. Not so different from our usage. Context will matter. But very basically, this is a word that was used all throughout Greek history to speak of just a mass of people when you are not trying to distinguish specially between them. So you're just talking about everybody without trying to make uh, distinguishments between, say, whether they are male or female, whether they are wealthy or poor, what ethnicity they are. John's point here is very simple. His point is to say that all people, without any other differentiation among them, have sins. The world has sins. This is echoed throughout the Bible, but perhaps as clear as anywhere, 1 John 1.10, if anyone says he is without sin, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. We need to be careful and clarify something. Maybe it's something that you need to be reminded of, because it runs definitely against the world that we live in. Not just this modern Western culture, but at all times. This is one of those truths, according to Romans 1, that man suppresses in unrighteousness. 
What is sin? What does he mean when he says sin? When the Bible talks about sin, it is not simply talking about the things that you do towards other people or the things that lurk in your heart that are harmful to society, simply as such, relative to other people. It's certainly an aspect of it, but it is not it. When the Bible talks about sin, it's getting at something much, much more profound. And we can never lose sight of it, or we will lose sight of who Christ is. He'll just become a coach, an example. Sin is a record of actual offenses against the living God as they relate to offending him. And it's utterly right of God to be upset with sin because you did not make yourself, you did not invent the human species. When he formed us, he made us image bearers. When somebody sits down to craft, say, a a vessel, a pot, they decide what it's for. And when God made your life, he created you with what is the most imaginably privileged calling to represent his character. Perfect love, perfect justice. All of us have sin in the acts that we live out. Too many to name. In fact, often when we feel relatively good, it's simply that we are suppressing the memory of everything that came before. But it's also that inward disposition to sin. Which one of us, I put it to you as a realistic challenge, which one of us, if we decided to walk out of these doors today, could go 24 hours and have no sin? And that points to the fact, the reason why we can't simply not sin, it's rooted in us, in our very hearts. Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, And these are what make a man unclean in God's sight. Those are Jesus' words. So it's not simply the act outside of you that makes you unclean. It's the heart corruption that makes it feel natural and enticing and appetizing to sin. Of course, when we compare ourselves to other people in the world, there are times when we don't feel so very bad. Me too. You walk into a home improvement store. You go over to the paint section. And you go stand in the section where they've got 50, 60, 70 different shades of black. You've got flat black, shiny black. You've got all the micro variations of gray. And if you are shopping for, you know, charcoal paint, you might, if you're really finicky, start holding up three, four, five of these to see, oh yeah, no, that one's definitely lighter. Definitely lighter. And that is the way that we are with our sin. We compare ourselves against other people, but not against the Lord. And the Lord comes over here with the most illuminatingly white one of these cards, and he places it, and it's just radiating light. We only know holiness relative to our fallen state. We have to know holiness relative to the word. And the word says that God is a consuming fire. Angels who have never sinned cover their face in his sight. They are in awe of his holiness. And here John declares that the world has sins. Every kind of person, young and old, you don't have to teach the young, and the old have never learned it yet. 
Every kind of person, male and female, every kind of person, rich and poor, everyone has sins. And it's before all else that the Spirit calls you to behold this and to begin with yourself. We don't first look at someone else. We look at the log here. The Holy Spirit is calling you this evening for the first time or for the 5,000th time so that you may behold Christ aright. Behold yourself first. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And it's okay to say that. In fact, it's necessary to say that. But you have to go beyond just saying that to recognizing what it means you need. And this is the second aspect you have to consider. What is being implied here about what you need if you are a sinner? Verse 29 tells us very plainly, you need a lamb that takes away sins. A lamb that takes away sins. I know that some of our youngest ones here, and maybe visitors who are coming from outside of the Christian faith, you may not fully grasp what that means. However, at the time when John said this, it would have been immediately understandable to everyone around. And that's because for over a thousand years up to that point, the Jews had been worshiping in a particular way. God had had them set up a temple, and he had told them that only certain people could be in different areas as they moved towards the center area representing his holiness. Now, if you committed certain acts, you weren't even allowed to approach the temple. If you wanted to have acceptable worship there, ceremonially, you would have to bring an offering for your sins, you'd need to bring, in some cases, a lamb. It was very clear to them what was going on here. Now the lamb would be brought forward, and they would check it. A priest would check and make sure that it had no blemishes, no imperfections on it, physically speaking. And then its throat would be slit while the hand of the sinner was upon it. And this represented an identification or a transference in the identity of the guilt of the person to the substitute. And the lamb would die, and then it would be offered up on the altar, and then ultimately burned. And there in a picture, as it were, as the smoke rises up to heaven in a transformed sort, it's as if you are being accepted. You've passed through this, through the suffering of another. Now, what does that mean for us as a picture? It means two things. Throughout the Bible, this is a recurring theme. It means that unless your sins are taken away, you will be outside of God's presence. And it could not be any other way. God cannot become corrupt. He is of two pure eyes. For a time, he endures with much long suffering the sins of this world. But a day of judgment must come, will come. And if you don't have some means of having your sins dealt with, taken away, when you go before him, everything else in this world is not going to matter. Are you right with him? You will be outside. And moreover, it means that something from outside of yourself is needed in order to reconcile you to God. That lamb-like substitute told those people one thing very clear. They couldn't just offer themselves. And your best efforts cannot change your heart from within or atone for your past sins against the infinite dignity of God. 
You need something from outside of yourself, a lamb-like, pure substitute. Now think for a moment of some of the evils that the world would love to have taken away. And I'm sure among us, with different emphasis depending upon who hears, that you would like to see many of these evils taken away too. Are there not a great many evils in this world? As you hear them, think about the fact that some of these can be taken away, at least partially, by sinners. Poverty. Sinners have, at times, alleviated a degree of poverty in the world. Oppression. On this one night, if we could tally up the number of people weeping into their beds over the oppression that they have experienced... But sinners do at times, by God's goodness, take away some of that oppression in the world. Disease. Even in our own three or four generations, massive strides in medicine. And God uses sinners for that. Issues related to our environment, which looms so heavy over many. And yet it's possible that Minds may come together, laws may be put in place, some things may be held in check for a time. Now imagine that there was someone or even several people who were able to take away all of those, even just in your one lifetime. Imagine that for a moment. Just as there was somebody who came up with a way to deal with polio or there was a person who struck a peace accord and a war ended. Imagine there was a person who could take away all of those issues for a moment. How would we relate to that person? Would we not fall down in honor? Wouldn't there be parades? Wouldn't there be adulation forever? And yet all of those great and immense weights upon the world do not compare at all to the problem of sin. Because what will it profit you if all of those issues are taken care of in your mortal life, but then your soul is separated from God forever? And the blessedness that ultimately must come from knowing the source of all good. And no one in the world could do it. The world has its own sins and therefore no one else could be your lamb. And certainly you couldn't be your lamb. Psalm 49 verse 7. No man can possibly redeem his brother or pay his ransom to God. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and never can payment suffice. In all this world, there is no redemption for you. Let that weigh upon you. In all the billions of people who have ever lived, not one of them had teachings sufficient A life worthy to deliver themselves, let alone yourself and everyone else in this world, of this world. And it's only from that vantage that we turn then and behold Christ as he is. And verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When it says the Lamb of God, this is to signify the source of not only the nature, the source that God himself, in time and history, we're not talking about a myth, we're talking about something actually dated so many years ago. That God enters time and space by uniting his very person, the person of the Son, with true human nature. 
And why does he do that? Why is the nexus point of the divine and our experienced creative world found in a person? It's because unless he was very God of very God, unless he was infinite in value and fully powerful, no one else could atone for your sin. No one else could apply redemption and transform your heart to one of unbelief, to one of faith. You would still be raging against the Lord. You would still be under the bondage of sin forever. But as verse 34 says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Then behold the gospel of Good Friday. Good Friday is not a day when we celebrate that Jesus is the Lamb who might take away the sins of the world, who will try, who will make it possible. He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who is sufficient to save anyone and everyone who desires salvation in him. And that means that any day of your whole life, if you find yourself again wondering, would God receive me? This is the day of salvation. Cast yourself upon him. Isaiah 53, a portion that we heard a bit earlier in the reading. Isaiah 53, verse 6 and 11. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11, and God shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. A mystery that we can never explain, but which believers receive in faith, is that on Christ was laid the full burden, the penalty for your sins. And that he did so sufficiently, willingly, lovingly. That had God willed to elect exactly one person and it had been you, he would not love you less for that. That his desire was to take of sinners and make for himself a bride. To love and covenant forever. John chapter 1, just a little bit lower, verse 12 To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I simply ask you, what do you see when you look at Jesus tonight? What do you see when you look at the sacraments? Does this represent simply a custom of men remembering something a long time ago that inspires the kind of self-sacrifice that we see parroted in the world? Does this represent a willingness to do good for others merely? Or do you recognize in this a declaration that you are a sinner, that your ultimate issue is with God, but that God is willing to be reconciled to you, is through faith reconciled to you? I implore any who have not believed, believe. If you have questions about the faith, pursue them. Does anything else compare in importance? And if you have believed, then respond with wonder, love, gratitude. May it be that as we approach the celebration of Christ's resurrection on Sunday, that 
There would be times where his spirit works in you, that it will be something like awakening in that hospital afresh and somebody saying, this is the one. This is the one who saved your life. And that we would love him. Let's ask him even now to help us in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us. We ask that you would please enable us to give Christ the glory he deserves. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I invite you to turn in your forms and prayers book as we transition to the Lord's Supper to page 51. And that's because it has the words of the Apostles' Creed. There we are going to confess together. let me remind you as well, if you are visiting, if you haven't already filled out the card and you wish to partake, please do so. After communion, the deacons will receive a benevolence offering, and at that time, you'll simply drop that in. And we'll pray for God's blessing specifically upon our partaking in communion, and then stand for the Apostles' Creed. Almighty and everlasting God, We thank you that by the blood of your eternal covenant that Christ has secured for us a living way into the Holy of Holies. We ask that you would please cleanse our hearts, cleanse our lives, in order that we might respond in a way that pleases you, Lord. That we would receive the supper not as a qualification of our own, but as a confirmation of your kindness and as nourishment by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would cause us to perceive through faith our union with him, that we are raised already up with him in heaven, for we share the same spirit. We ask that you would also form more deeply in us the bond of union with our brothers and sisters, not only here, but throughout the world and in glory. Please help us to receive your gifts with due honor, and without superstition. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.